We are very blessed to be here. We had an interesting day of travel and glad that the dear brother from your congregation met us down here in Richmond and brought us here to Bridgewater. And at 11.30 last night, we were trying to understand the struggling life of a 31-year-old single sister who carries a tremendously heavy burden on her life. And it's not all her fault. But she was looking for some help there, and we were with her for quite a few hours. And so my wife was not in bed very long last night, and she told me that she didn't sleep very well when she was there. And I probably got more rest than she did. But it is an amazing thing that the same God who works around the world in the lives of many of his people wants to do that same thing in your heart and mind tonight and throughout this week. And it's very, very unlikely that we will learn anything new this week because this Bible's been in your lap for a long time. And we don't have anything else to, we, don't, we have no other well to draw from for the waters of salvation. There's only one place to get it. And yet, even those of us who have known the Lord for a while, we're ever learning and we learn new things. And we can find out that uh, today in the Christian life, something bothers me, calls my attention, and I feel very conscious of that, that two years ago I would have tripped right over, thought nothing about it, it wouldn't have stumbled me a bit, and I wouldn't have even thought anything was wrong with it. But now, for some strange reason, it seems like I should do something about that. It seems like that should be a change in my life. And that's because someone is walking with God. That's because... Though we've known these things all this while, life brings to each one of us at unique times and moments those teachable opportunities when we can receive something from his word that we maybe should have been conscious of it before, but the circumstances are such that right now it seems like God is speaking to me. And maybe that'll be our experience this week. If that'd be the case, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? If that would happen to us while we're together here. And I don't have very much more to say about myself. But I will make, I will make this interesting comment. I mean, at least it was interesting when it happened. I was preaching in the state of Illinois. And uh, a young man, he wasn't young anymore. He was a grandfather, but he'd been one of my school students. And he called not too very long before the service was supposed to start and said, Brother Dale, could you come to the meeting house a little early? There's a band load of people coming from... Missouri, this was in Illinois, they were coming from Missouri, and they, they want to meet you there, and I'm going to be there too, and my wife. So I got to that church, and there was Andrew Rudolph and his wife, Carolyn. And about that time, a black van pulled in there, and five couples got out of that van. Now, these couples were married, and these couples were all grandparents, and one of those two, 
and when in each pair, one of them had been students in a school where I taught in Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. And I had not seen these students for 33 years. It's either 33 years or 36. It's in there somewhere. So they would have been ages 12, 13, 15 years old when I had last seen them. And now you add that number of years to a person's life. So that evening I stood in the pulpit and I told the people there, the congregation, I was very happy to have some of my school students with me tonight. So the members of the church turned around and looked around to try to find these children and they couldn't find anybody. Uh, There were were no children there. There were just grandparents there. And, uh, And so it is tonight that there's some former school students here and I don't know if they are grandparents or not. I, I don't even know that. I, I think they could be, but I don't know if they are. And I should know, but I don't. But they, they are welcome here tonight, and so is everyone else that is here. And I've done a lot of things in life, different kinds of things. I don't know if anything was ever as, as, a, as a, much of a blessing to me as those years in the classroom uh, two different schools there in the state of Pennsylvania years ago. And so I had a person tell me one time, he was a very well-known preacher. He said, Brother Dale, you don't, you don't ever preach. All you ever do is teach. You don't ever get any preaching done. You, you just teach. That's all you do. And I'm not sure that's true or not. But I suppose our Lord Jesus was better known as a teacher than what it was as a preacher. And after he gave us that very beautiful sermon on the mount, that's what they call it, the Bible says he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So he was a, he was the master of teachers. And I suppose it's not wrong to teach. So we'll probably have a little teaching lesson here tonight. And when Brother Ellis called me and announced these meetings and wondered how this could work out, and it looked like the schedule with the Lord's blessing permitted us to visit this community on this week, during this week, he told me, well, you know, in our congregation, one unique thing about it is we have a large number of children in our congregation. And I see some evidence of that even here tonight. And there might be more children that are not here right now. And so I'm going to start with uh, probably the best-known children's story that is anywhere known in the Bible. I suppose it's a a story that any any child here three three years old or older would already know. And yet... Before we're done, I think the oldest grandfather and grandmother in here will learn something new, though we know the story very well. And we'll try to make some applications to that, and and what we're doing tonight then is just making an introduction to what we'll do later in the week, because we won't be able to make all the applications to what we're saying tonight in this one evening, but it'll give us an opportunity to expand on that later and uh, the hymns we sang also were very preparatory for what we need to say here. 
And so I trust it be a blessing for the congregation, for those that gather, and, and for the children, too. And the brother asked me if I would uh, be willing to have some children's lessons throughout this week. And I suppose the best, the most effective preaching we could do here is if we had a children's lesson every night. That is to say, if we'd all be children and would learn a lesson every night. And uh, I was preaching yesterday morning in a state somewhat to the west of here, out there in Iowa, and they have an interesting thing there. They have some families coming to their congregation from some quite some distance away. They are not members of that church, but they have learned about it and started coming there. And this family came from Des Moines, Iowa. They do not have the kind of uh, historic background that many of you would have. They, they came to a, a more biblical and more structured kind of Christianity and Christian life and expression and testimony through their own study of the Bible, found Christ that way too, and you would have been surprised at the appearance of this family, the way they dressed, the way they posed themselves and presented themselves, it was a very, very much an order, a beautiful thing. And this uh, daddy was standing there at the back, he just came in the door with his children, he had a little girl I guessed her to be about five years old. I thought something between four and six. She is five and will be six years old maybe tomorrow. I think she said her birthday is in two days. That would be tomorrow then. She'll be six years old. This little girl was standing beside her daddy and she just had a beautiful little face and she was as calm and quiet. She stood there beside her daddy and, and every time he looked, she looked at him, she had to look up like this because he was a real tall man and she's a little, little girl. And the best way we could get any benefit out of this meditation this evening and throughout this week is if we'd be like that little girl. And the more like her we could possibly be, the better, the more effective will be these services this week in this church. That little child has learned already in life that she cannot live without her parents. She has learned that mother must prepare the food and and when she opens her drawer, mother put in there the clothing that she needs to put on for the morning. And all the things that she depends on for her life, daddy and mother provided for her. And she's not anxious about it. She just knows it's going to be that way. And so since she can't and they can, and since she likes to help with little she is able to, yet she gets so very little done compared with what they get done. And this little child looks up at the face of her daddy. And isn't that a fairly accurate picture of what we're like as God's children? And yet God includes us in it and gives us credit for it as if we had been the ones that had done it. But we couldn't have gotten anything done if he wouldn't have done his part. So we want the Lord God to do his part tonight and throughout this week in these meetings. And I'm sure that's where your ministers feel and Sunday school teachers and fathers and mothers and school teachers all through the years of this congregation's history. We, we want God to do it. And it's even a step further when we have evidence that God is doing it. And in the story tonight, 
we have evidence that God is doing it. Now, at home, behind the pulpit, there is a, a chalkboard back there. And uh, we use a chalkboard a good bit in Costa Rica because we're working with first-generation Christians. We have a lot of first-generation Christians in our congregation, and most of them are nationals. And so we try to teach them. And so we write things on the board or draw a little sketch or do something like that. And it helps them get things together. It helps them to follow where you are. It helps them to see the word. It helps them to uh, see relationships. So you write a title down or you do something like that. And I don't have a board up here tonight. doesn't matter because you're, you're further, probably academ academically a little further along than they are. But I want to uh, use a phrase tonight for a title. The, the battle is the Lord's. And that phrase is in your Old Testament at least three times. One of the times it's in the Bible is when Abigail came to David. She intercepted him, really. She came to him with a, a number of animals laden with gifts, with food. And she had a special mission when she hunted David with 600 men there in the wilderness, not too very far from her home. She was aware of the fact that ill was determined upon her husband, Nabal, and she thought she would try to dissuade this blooming warrior that was out there in the desert and prevent him from coming to do what he was planning to do to her husband. And she was well aware of his foolish ways. She understood that he was worthy of some judgment, possibly. But she felt that she should try to prevent David from doing that. And as she was giving her explanations to David as she knelt before him, she reminded David that the battle is the Lord's. When Jehoshaphat was facing an army much bigger than what he himself could muster, he tried to encourage his people as they were singing they had that chorus going on there in preparation, a strange way to prepare for a battle. He told his people also the battle is the Lord's. And the other time we have that phrase in the Old Testament is in the story that I would like to share with you tonight. The battle is the Lord's. You might want to open your Bible to it there in 1 Samuel 17. This story is interesting. I don't know how you teach this story to your children when you read it. I don't know if you've got an Edgar Myers Bible story book. If you have uh, Uncle Arthur's Bible story series that you read to your children, I don't know how you get Bible stories into your children if you just read the story from the Bible itself. I don't know how you explain this story to your children. It's a little bit scary for a child to understand that there's great big people that stand over nine feet tall. It's probably a little difficult for children to realize that, that, that somebody who we admire in the scriptures, somebody who we deeply appreciate, someone who is highly lauded and, and considered to be a man of faith and included that catalog of heroes of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, that that, that kind of a person would be guilty of killing somebody else. I don't know how that looks to your family, how that looks to your children. It's kind of a challenge 
and uh, you know, maybe just a theological dilemma. If you want to look at things from a non-resistant point of view, but maybe it would help us if we realize this, and maybe our children should know this, that there was a time when the only way to take care of wrong, evil, sinfulness, blaspheme against God, defying God, flying into the face of God, being rebellious against God, not appreciating the word of God. The only way to take care of that kind of a person was to do what the law of Moses said and eliminate those people, slay those people so they don't have a terrible influence on, upon others. Because converting the heart and changing a man at that time was not like it is today. We can do that today. It's a beautiful thing to see what the gospel does to the life of a person. To change it. I think one of the problems we have in some of our churches is the fact that we don't see enough of that. We always were good. We always behaved. We always did it right. We were raised that way from little on up. We always were, we always were good children. We always were good people. We didn't do bad things. We were not of this world. We, we were better. But not everyone is that way. Many people have very messed up lives like some people we were working with this past week. And what we work with. But the gospel changes those lives. A tremendous change. And they come to a place where they're ashamed of the way they used to live. And sometimes it's not very easy to get them to even talk about how it used to be. They're so glad it's different. And one of, the, one of the benefits that that is in our congregation, one of the benefits that that is for us is the fact that these people that were saved from a, a world of sin or a, a world of confusion or a world of great loss, that they want to retain what they found. They don't want to see that change. They don't want these churches to drift. They don't, they don't want to just slide back into a, a mediocre accommodation to the world. They don't want to do that. They, they have a more of a determination to maintain, to hold fast, to be still, to appreciate, to retain what they were given. And I think that's a healthy thing for every congregation to have. And if we're not bringing people into our congregations that come from that kind of background, we don't have that built-in safety that Christ wants all of his church to, to experience. And that's why this great big man was slain by a shepherd boy. He had said terrible things about God, about God's law, about God's people. He, he defied God in most terrible and, bo and, and boisterous ways. And he boasted about himself. And he put himself in the very... Why well, it's, it's as if it's as if he was challenging God Himself. It's as if he was saying to the lightning, "Strike me," or saying to the God of Heaven, "I'm your match. Anytime you're ready, let's go for it." And a person like that in in the Old Testament under the law of Moses, something must be done there, and that's what happened to that giant. So I I just offer that little explanation. For somebody that said, might be saying to themselves, how could you do that? Why did that, why did they do it that way at that time? And that's probably at least a 
part of an answer to that question. I want to talk a little bit about the history of this story. We have two giants in the story, really. If you put David beside both these men, he was small both times. Goliath was extremely tall. So was Saul. And this, this shepherd boy, David, finds himself before both of these men in this story. That's not the only similarity, probably, between Saul and David. Uh, excuse me, between Saul and the giant, Goliath, in this case. You could, ask, you could ask me this question, since Saul also was very defiled, since Saul also was very disobedient, since Saul also had a very wrong spirit about him, why didn't David kill Saul? He had a slingshot. He knew how to find smooth stones. And David seemed to have this unique habit of borrowing weapons from somebody else. And when he was working on a project, if he didn't think he had the equipment he needed, why well, he, he had no problem at all taking it from a sleeping man. He was able to do that. Why did he kill Saul? And, and I don't know the answer really except for this. Goliath was not anointed of God. And Saul was. Saul was the anointed of the Lord. If you read the record and, and, and listen to why David said he will not kill that king, that evil king, he mentioned that. That king is anointed of God. We, 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 we're not going to kill him. We're going to respect him because the anointing oil of God is upon that man. Maybe that's a lesson for all of us to remember. Maybe we could learn something from David there. I had a preacher call me not very long ago from the States. I was in Costa Rica. He called from the States and said to his, his congregation, they have a, a tremendously difficult problem with disobedience in their church. He, he wondered if I have any thoughts about that. We, we have a problem with disobedience in our congregation. Disobedience to the pastors, disobedience to the, to the agreements and positions we have in our congregation. And, and all the people know what they are, but they're, they're, we're, we're getting away from it somehow or another. Well, I said, Brother, I don't know, but I, I'm going to ask you a question. Is, is there maybe some kind of inconsistent practice among the pastoral team of your congregation? Yes, Brother Dale, there is. Well, I said, you know, those two often go together. If we don't, if we lose respect for the man of God that's called upon to serve us and direct us and instruct us, then we then we lose appreciation for the things he stands for. But I said, if we would all be like David, we wouldn't do that. If we'd all be like David, though the man was wrong, though his spirit was out of order, though he was disobedient himself, we would maintain our commitments if we were like David. Yes, Brother Dale, but in our, in our congregation, not everybody is a David, he said. In our congregation, not everyone's a David. Well, I suppose in our congregation, not everyone is either. And I suppose one of the things we'd like to do this evening is make sure there's a little more David in me when I leave here than there was when I came. I don't know if you, when you tell the story to your children, if, if it ever dawns on them that they can be like David. I don't know if they, and not because they pick up slings or, and, and, sling, and, and spin them around at people. But in other ways, 
And maybe we can just touch that briefly before we're finished. Saul was the king. Throughout his 40 years, as king over Israel, the United Kingdom at that point, he had an enemy to the east, to the west of him in Palestine. The Philistines were over there against the Mediterranean Sea and they had a strong army. They had a big advantage over Israel. They had iron tools. They had iron weapons. The Israelites did not. They had blacksmiths over there and they were, they were not found among the Israelites. In fact, if you had a plow or a hoe or a machete and needed to have it sharpened, you had to go down to the Philistines to get it done. I don't know why they didn't have that developed. I don't know why they didn't have those things there. It seemed like with the ability they had, they could have learned to put that together. I don't know why that was. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't know historically why that is. These Philistines were a very formidable enemy. And the battles were strong with them. And when this story takes place, it was very, very obvious that Saul could not match it. He could not bring his men to resist this army. In fact, he was so far out of order as a general himself, his own men, who should have been and could have been and would have been faithful to him, forsook him. And so he's at a very difficult place with this giant, when this champion, your Bible calls him, comes standing out there into that valley between these two camps, these two opposing camps of soldiers, and stands out there and defies God and says, if you can take care of me, if you can fight against me, then we'll be your servants. And if, we, if I win, then guess what? And there was no doubt in anyone's mind he was going to win. And no one would dare to go out there against this giant. But this was the condition at the time of this story. And this big man is described in chapter 17, verses 4 through 7, and you can read there as in your Bible as I read it to you. And there was a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's just slightly over nine feet. It's, uh, it would be seven, 277 and a half centimeters if you use that, if you, the metric system in your thinking. And if you're going with the, with the imperial measure, that's going to be nine feet and maybe an inch or two in some place, some place in there. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like the, a weaver's beam and his spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron and one bearing a shield went before him. So this man is accompanied by somebody else. He has an armor bearer with him, in this case carrying a shield. And Goliath the giant has his offensive weapons. There's the, the, defensive, the offensive ones, the defensive weapon, the shield is carried by somebody else. And the result of this entire presentation of his defiance against God is recorded for us in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And another place you'll find that they sought to flee from this large champion, this large giant. Now David was just the opposite from Saul. In this regard, that whereas the Spirit of God had departed from Saul, an evil spirit was troubling Saul, just the opposite happened to Saul. 
If you just turn back there one page of your Bible to chapter 16 and look at verse 13, it reads, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the name, in the midst of his brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The Spirit, the Spirit of God came upon David, and, and he, it was known that way. And when the king, in his misery and his depression, and his schizophrenic problem that he had there with his mental instability, was hoping maybe someone could provide a little music for him, and they didn't have any MP3 players at that time. And so someone said, yes, I know someone that knows how to play a harp. And if we could get him to come and help, that might help you. Verse 18. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing and a mighty and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and prudent in matters and a comely person. But notice what it says here. And the Lord is with him. Uh, the, the kind of divine accompaniment in whatever he does that it was known to others, though he was this young person. And the Lord was with him. And someone knew that. Someone observed that in his life. And David had done this playing for this man. He had done that with a harp. And for some reason, he had gone back home to his father, Jesse. And he was a tender of sheep back there, a shepherd boy. And he was back there doing that again when his daddy gave him the task I'm going back to those three older brothers. And those three older brothers are named for us in the Bible prior to this because when Samuel came with his oil to anoint a king, Jesse thought that these great big fellas with more experience and age would be maybe the ones qualified. And God said, no. We have three of them named there. And these same three are now here in this camp of Israel while this great big giant is out here bragging and defying the God of heaven. David arrived just about the time when this man stands out front there presenting himself and deriding the armies of God. So he heard it. And he made the mistake perhaps of giving the indication to those who were listening to him that he'd be willing to go out there and do something about this. He felt this should be taken care of. He didn't think that this should continue. He didn't see any reason why this has to keep on happening. So his older brother came to him very angry. And he chided him, he rebuked him for his audacity in thinking that he can go out there and do something about this giant. And let him know that he would be better off if he'd go back to where he came from and take up what, what he was doing. So that, that, that's, that was certainly a discouraging word to hear from your older brother. David finds himself before the king, before King Saul, And this king can't understand what this young fellow plans to do. And he lets him know that this man is an experienced guerrero. He's an experienced warrior. He's an experienced gorilla. You, you, you be careful what you're doing. You can't go out against him. And of course, David said, well, you know, that might be true, but 
we, we have sheep, you know, and at our place, a, a lion came one time. Now, I don't know how David, how old David was when this story happened, when that lion came out there and wanted to rob one of those sheep from the flock, maybe a lamb, and, and he did something to that lion. But he did not take any credit for it. He, he recognized it was God that was doing that. It, it was the God that was in David. I told you that that little girl, six years, five years old, she was six years old tomorrow. She cannot do nearly what her daddy can do. And she looks up at her daddy. Her dad was a great big strong man. He has a very interesting job. The work that he does is a very, very interesting work. And this little girl, I can imagine that in his shop. She helps him sometimes. And, and though she might contribute a little, I'm sure that daddy is the, the one that gets the work finished and the one that makes it all possible that it happens. And David had that relationship with God. Yes, he had a sling. Yes, he had a way to sl slay a, a, a lion. But, but it was God. And then he talks about the bear. You know that story. You children all know that story. But the point here is that David gave credit to God for that. He didn't say, you know, I'm experiencing this thing. You don't know how accurate I am. If I throw a stone with a sling, it goes right where I told it to go. I have accuracy. I have practice. I can hit the bullseye. I know what I'm doing. I've been to Cabela's. I bought with the best one they had. This is what I got here. That's not the way it is. David did not talk like that. He didn't believe like that. He didn't think like that. He did not live like that. But he felt it was wrong for this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God. You find that phrase in verse 26. So Saul tried to load this boy down with some heavy armor. He put some things on his head and put this stuff on him and David tried to walk and it, it didn't go very well and David wasn't used to that. He had a shepherd's coat. He knew how to live with that. He didn't have this armor on when the bear died and when the lion was killed. He didn't have this equipment. But, but he did have a few things that he was acquainted with. He decided to go out against that giant with those things. When the giant saw him coming... He made fun of this boy. But I suppose that it'd be good if we would pause for a moment and notice one thing that David particularly did before he marched out there to where this giant was raving and bragging and defying God. It's in verse 40. He took his staff. All you children know about a rod and a staff. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know the shepherd has a staff. You heard of rod and staff publishers. We have that staff there in verse 40. He took his staff in his hand. Now what, what is a staff going to do with this giant? And chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Now, when the Philistine saw this fellow coming, he, he thought this was a laughing matter. And so he's, he talks like that. 
Verse 42, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, I don't know how old, and ruddy, and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thee thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David had a chance to talk. And we have David speaking in the next three verses. And I want you to notice in 45, 46, and 47, David's references to God. And God has been defied here for 40 days. God has been mocked and blasphemed for 40 days. The armies of Israel have been ridiculed for 40 days. I want you to notice what David says about God. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver me into thy, deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give thy, the carcass of the host of Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I have often wondered, after that tremendous victory that Jonathan his armor bearer had against the garrison of the Philistines in chapter 14 of this same book, I have often wondered why Jonathan would not have taken upon himself the responsibility of, of, of uh, eliminating this defiant voice that came out there twice every day for 40 days. Morning and evening. And Jonathan didn't do it. And I don't know why he didn't. Because I think the faith was there to do it. I think the blessing of God was upon his life. I think you could have said about Jonathan what has been said about David. The Lord was with him. I think that was very evident, although he took his, the point of his spear and stuck it into some honeycomb and brightened his face and his countenance and his strength because he ate it when his daddy said no one should eat anything. But he didn't know his dad said that. And God used him in a mighty way. And, he, and, David, and Jonathan said, if all of you would have had food to eat this day, this would have been a far greater victory. I mean, after all, it's, it's good to fast, but you can't fast all the time. It, does, it doesn't work very well. Life doesn't go very well that way if you're fasting all the time. So we have to eat sometimes. And I think Jonathan could have done it, but he didn't do it. And I, again, I can't answer the question but you children might ask your parents that when they're reading you the story. Where was Jonathan? Because as soon as chapter 17 is over and chapter 18 begins, you see Jonathan and David get together right away. And they bless each other tremendously. In fact, then Jonathan provides for David something he never had before. Some armor that he could work with, learn to use, and, and profit from it. And, and he gave that to him. He wanted him to have it. So, so closely were they did together. And arms were very hard to find at that time. And Jonathan gave what he had to David. But I suppose that one of the reasons why maybe Jonathan refrained from doing that was because of his daddy. It could be that Jonathan would have felt that if anyone does this, daddy should do it. 
I wonder if you are sitting here tonight and you have a young man and a young lady in your home. And they're saying, if anyone does that, daddy should do it. I wonder why daddy doesn't do it. I wonder where daddy's faith is. I wonder where daddy's testimony is. I wonder why daddy doesn't visit the neighbor. I wonder why daddy doesn't do something about it. I think daddy and mama could do something about it. I wonder why they're not doing anything about it. I wonder if that would happen. And I think Saul should have done something about it. But he was not in spiritual condition to do anything about it. If Saul would have gone against that Goliath, the only thing he would have had to his advantage was his own practice and his own ability. And David did not need to depend on that. The three other older brothers of David, they had, uh, you know, I could ask you, would, would a staff or five smooth stones and, and, a, and a sling have more to offer, have more potential, have more accuracy, have a more deadly effect, have a more... Be a better way to fight a battle than with spears and javelins and swords. But that is not the way it is. It wasn't the lack of arms that was the problem. It was something else. And God would have been available all the time if Eliab would have chosen to do it or Abinadab, or Shammah, the older brothers of David, if they would have chosen to do it, if they would have had the faith in God, if they would have had that union with God, if they would have been partners with the Lord, if they would have been used to working with God, understanding things from God's heart. And of course, David had that advantage, it says in both Testaments, that he was a man after God's own heart. In our Bible, that would say, a man whose heart was like God's heart, according to the heart of God, is what it says in Spanish. According to God's heart. And so this giant came tumbling down when one little stone went up in the air. And the giant fell forward onto the ground. And he was defeated. And that great victory that David had that day cost him a tremendous price for many years after this. Chased like a dog in the desert and had to hide in the caves and was separated from his family. Had 3,000 men chasing after him in the wilderness and trying to find where he was. And there was only one purpose that, to eliminate him, to put, put an end to his life. And the story of David's, of that pursuit, Saul after David is one of the most tragic stories, but it tells you what kind of man this King Saul was. And because David was victorious, the king couldn't stand it. He couldn't have it that somebody else would receive credit for something that he had not done. And, and that should be another moment for us to pause and ask ourselves some questions. One of the ways we can tell if there's an enmity between me and a brother or sister in the church is this. How do I feel when not only did that person do well in the spiritual assembly or do well in his Christian testimony or do well in something that he was undertaking, and not only did he do well, but somebody else in the church, you heard them speak well about it and, 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 and express appreciation for what that brother contributed, and in your, or sister. And in your life, how do you feel about that? 
And if there's a sense in there in which you would say, I, I, I'd better try to reverse that record. I'd better try to level the playing field. I, I'd better try to give a balancing view here. I'd better just insert a couple things to help clarify this. Uh... That's, that's a warning to us. That something's wrong. And I have something in my heart towards a brother that I should never have, and God will not allow me to have that. And I, I don't have God's blessing upon my life if that's the way I feel about a brother or sister in the church. David felt, and Saul felt that way about David. And that's the very reason why this terrible pursuit of a, of a young man's life was happening out there in the desert. It should never have been, but that's the way it was. This is an unusual thing that David did here because somebody else could have done it. And I know most of us know David As a shepherd boy, we know him as being the most illustrious king of Israel. We know him as a poet. We know him as a musician. We know him as a warrior that never had lost a battle in his lifetime. But David was something more than that. He was a worshiper of the Most High God. And being a worshiper of God, he understood the heart of God. And when situations come up, he, he, he could just about imagine how God would feel about this situation. If God was here, what would God do? What does God want us to do? Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. What does God want done in this case? What does God want done in this extenuating moment? What, does, what would bring glory to God? What would God do? If God had a chance to do right now anything he wished to do, what would it be? And David wanted to see God have the chance to do that very thing that God would want done in any given moment, in the life of the ministry, in the life of the congregation, and in this case, in this situation out there between two camps of the Philistines and Israelites. David understood what God wanted done, and God will be given the opportunity to do it. And do I give God the opportunity to do it? Yes, God could slay that large giant, but until someone finds, picks up five smooth stones and puts them in a shepherd's bag, it's not going to happen. Why don't we end the story right there and, and talk about the story a little bit? Is that okay? We'll just let the story stand as we've heard it, read part of it. Let's talk about it a little bit. You and I are in a battle too. There's no Philistine standing out there. His name's not Goliath. He's not ten, nine feet tall. He might be taller than that. But we're in a battle too, and it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against strong powers and principalities. And we probably have some kind of a giant before us, some kind of a difficulty, some kind of impossible thing that looks formidable to us, and we're not, we know we can't handle that. How long it's been before us, I don't know. And in your life, I don't know what that consists of, and I don't know what that might be tonight. Maybe we'll learn about your life before this week is over. Right now, I don't know what might be there. I know where we live, we face very difficult things. 
So we're involved in a warfare where spears and javelins won't help very much. Back there in Ecclesiastes, in your old book there, in chapter 8, verse 8, it tells us there that there's no discharge in this war. And when you read those words in the King James Version, I don't know what that means to you, but in our language, I know what it means to us. It says that, it says that arms will not help in this war. It says that being well armed will not take care of you in this war. Because it's a kind of war where just so much spears or so much metal or so much, uh, how sharp it is on the edge, the two edges, won't make a difference. The war is different from that. The war requires another kind of attack, another kind of contest. And just as important and just as real. But the, the carnal weapons are not what we need here. The weapons of warfare are not carnal, carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We have weapons that are very strong. What are those weapons? So you can entertain that question for a little while. Powerful through God. Mighty through God, to the pulling down of these strongholds. The Bible tells us to take on ourselves the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, and God expects, and God has made provision, and God understands that when we're in his will, when the thing's all over, we're standing. Saul, was, the giant was not standing. David was standing. Having done all, Stand. When it's over, we're standing. The, the battle was difficult. The task was humanly impossible. Standing. Take upon yourself the whole armor of God. The armor of God. Not the armor of Saul. The armor of God. Because the battle's the Lord's. That's what David said. Now, I realize with you tonight, and this is maybe a few practical applications here. You know, these, these men standing around there were part of this army. The three older boys of Jesse, David's older brothers. Jonathan was there. Saul was there. There were other warriors there. There were other people that were part of that army. They were there. But they were not fighting the battle. It'd be possible for me to bring to Virginia a portfolio, a briefcase, a notebook filled with outlines and study materials. But what if I come with, I don't have any five stones in my bag? We could go out there in the streets of Bridgewater or Harrisonburg or Stanton or the other towns you have around here, Charlotte. We can pass out tracks. 
and have no stones in the bag. And say not a word about the Lord Jesus Christ to anybody. But, yeah, what one? Here's one. Yeah. And what did we do? In that case, I'd be the same as those three older brothers. I would not be a David. The, the, the work is still out there. The, the, the change did not take place. The, the need was not met. The wrong was not made right. There was no evidence of God's presence. There was no evidence of his power. There was no evidence of what God would have done. There was no faith in what he could do. The, the situation was left like we found it. I had a preacher call me not very long ago and said, Brother Dale, I've got a serious problem in this congregation where we are. He said, I, we have a minister here that has just got done saying that if only some of those families would leave. It, it would be so much better in our congregation if they would leave. If, if they were just, you know, moving van out of here. That sounds like Eliab to me. It doesn't sound like David. It sounds like what Shammah would have said or Abinadab. I don't think David would have talked like that. Can you imagine David looking at his flock and saying, Oh, oh, look at these sheep I've got here. If only stockyard. If only out of here. I noticed my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. He calls my name and goes before them. And the sheep hear his voice and know him and they follow them. They follow him. But they will not follow the voice of a stranger. And it's a, it's a hireling that's speaking. A shepherd doesn't talk like that. All we're doing is saying, I can't handle it. All we're doing is saying, I don't have the armament. All we're saying is, I don't have five stones. All we're saying is, it's not for me to do it. I, I can't handle it. Out of here with it. Don't bother me with it. It reminds me when Jesus came off the mountain of transfiguration. And there were nine disciples down there, and three had been with him. And there was a commotion going on down there, and Jesus soon found out what it was. And here this young man who, this young fellow, this, uh, this, the, the daddy's son was in this terrible condition. And he said, I, I brought him to your disciples. I thought that would be the right place to take him. I, I thought that would be the place to go. I, I, I thought that if someone's a disciple of, of Jesus Christ, that would be the place to take this problem. And, and I brought him to your disciples. They can't do anything. And Jesus said, bring him to me. And just so that you get the idea, don't, don't get a false idea of who's speaking to you tonight. And he said, I'm supposed to introduce myself, and I suppose this would be an appropriate way to do it. So that you don't get a false impression, and so that you don't think that there's a message coming here that no one can live up to. That it's too far beyond us. That it's a, it, it belongs in Costa Rica and doesn't belong in Virginia. I'll tell you a story. And then I'll remove all doubt. You'll be, we'll be on the same, like they say in the States, we'll be on the same page. Whatever that means up here. 
So I was in a very, very remote frontier Nicaraguan town, mud streets. It would have been mud, that wouldn't have been so bad, but you know, when you have a lot of donkeys walking on the streets and pigs also and chickens, when the horses are on those same roads, something else gets mixed with the mud. It's not very pleasant either to get your feet into it or either to smell it. And that street was like, those streets were like that. That's the only kind of streets they had there. There was no asphalt, there was no cement. We had a, we had a gospel team up there. And as I was there, a young fellow about 18 years old came running over to where I was. I, I saw him coming from across the street, and he came across the, the, the mud there and over to where I was. And he came up to me, and he said, I'm looking for Eugenio. I'm, I'm looking for, that's me. I'm looking for Dale in, in your language. And I don't know how he knew what my name was. He said, my daddy told me to come and find you. Could you come to our house right away? Could, could you, could you? I came to get you. Could, could you go along with me down to our house? So I looked around the other group that I was with there, and I didn't know what was coming up, and I didn't know if this is a trap. I don't know what kind of danger this is. It's not very wise to separate yourself from a group like that and go off someplace where you're alone, not with conditions in Nicaragua at that time, right after the war. But I felt that I should go with him. And this young man was, was, was anxious. He was going fast. I, I, I kept after him. He was young and he was going. And we went street after street and we were down out of the village and out of the town. There's a, a, a forest down there, a rainforest down there, and there's a river down there. And he was down close to that and started going out, out of the town, following, this, following the stream out, out across there. And there were some houses down ahead and to make a long story short, we finally got to the house where this boy must have lived. And when we got to the door, the daddy met us at the door. And his daddy is what asked me to come. So I got in there, and here's the daddy meeting at the door. Oh, I'm so glad you came. Oh, come with me. He took me in this house, and there was a little room in there, and there was a cot in there, in that room. And on that cot, there was a young man lying on that cot. He was a brother to the one who had run up there to find me. And this young fellow's lying here on this bed. And this young man is in terrible shape physically. I'm not going to describe the problem he has physically because it would be very embarrassing to do that in this audience. It was a very debilitating thing. He could not go out in the public. He laid there on that cot in that bed. The father explained to me what his problem was, exactly as he could describe it, and told me what they had tried to do about that, tried to find help for this boy up till now, and nothing they've done has worked, and so they asked for me to come. He wants me to fix this boy. I'm not sure if they thought that I was a doctor. I'm not sure what all they thought was going to happen if I was in their home. But, but I looked at this young man, and he's, he's, he's looking up. He's lying there in the bed looking up. He sees me standing there. And can you imagine how he must have felt if he ever thought this is the last hope I have? 
and I felt as helpless and as useless. In a case like that, I did not know what to do. I don't think there's a doctor in America that could have helped him with the problem he had. As terribly embarrassing as what it was and as debilitating as what it was, I stood there, looked at that young man and took him by the hand, held his hand, looked into his face, prayed for him. And maybe those five stones were not where they should have been. But when I left there, that young man was still in great need. And I didn't really do anything about it. I've had that experience more than once in life. And what does God want done? And what can we give and what can we offer? And your pastor here just came back from Mexico and this happened in Mexico and it happened very, very close to the very place where he was. It, I was visiting there with Gustavo and Car- Car- Carol and where are you? You're right there. And when, when this happened and, a, and five doctors came to the States in an airplane and set up a clinic there in the town. And they brought all kinds of cripples and everything, any kind of thing in there. And some had eye problems. They had eye, eye doctors. And some had things with their ears. There were ear doctors there. One of the doctors was a chiropractor, believe it or not. And there were five of them. And they set up a clinic there for the whole day. And I was there to translate. for the, Each doctor needed a translator because he was English. And so I translated for the one doctor. I did that all day long. And he saw, he saw over 40 patients that day. And it was getting close to 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And he wanted to go out and get himself some sandwiches and enjoy the evening, you know, and, and, and maybe get to the veranda someplace and have some shade and some uh, who knows what, some refreshment. And he was tired of the day's work. And he was getting a little, I could tell he was a little anxious with his patients. And he was a little jerky. And he was a little uh, curt with them. And, and uh, I saw a car pull in here, and it was time to close this thing down. It was time to shut this clinic for the day, and I saw a car pull in here, and, and several young fellows and a young lady got out of the car. And then I saw the, the back doors, and the fellows got a hold of this person who was in there and started carrying him. They carried him in. The, we were in the schoolhouse. Each doctor had a different classroom in the schoolhouse where he was doing his little clinic. And I was in the one room, and I don't know how they did it, who told them to do it, but they brought that young fella, up the steps and brought him down the hallway to the room where we were and brought him into the room and they took him and laid him right down in the bedroom, this examining table where this doctor was working. What do they want? What do they want? The, the doctor said to me in his language. And I said, would you tell us what you have here? Well, this is my boyfriend. And he was swimming. And he dived headfirst into a shallow pool and hit his head on a rock. And he broke his neck. And he can't move anything from here down. And we heard there was going to be a clinic here. So we, we tried all day to get here. And we just now got here. We've been driving all day. And surely... You doctors can fix him. I translated the story. 
And the doctor said to me, you tell them I can do absolutely nothing. And I decided I'm not going to tell them that we can do absolutely nothing. I wish we could have done something more for that boy than what we did. So I looked at the young lady, and she's all excited. She's all anxious. She's just waiting. And she'll do anything. What's the next thing she should do? I said, young lady, you said this is your boyfriend. Yes. Do, do you love your boyfriend? Y yes. But, but, but do you know what that means, to love your boyfriend? Would you be willing to marry him if he was no better able to take care of himself after your marriage than what he is now? Would you be willing to marry him? Y yes, yes, I would. I would marry him. Would you change his diapers? Would you put the spoon up to his mouth? Would you comb his hair? Will you brush his teeth? Will you put his socks on and tie his shoestrings? Will you do that for him? I, I would do that for him. Yes, I would do that. Little girlie, that might be the very thing that God wants you to do. And in doing that, you will love him like no wife in this town loves her husband. You go out and show people what the love of God really is. You take care of this young man. You bless him and love him. I don't know what the future is going to be, but you'll have a happy marriage. If that is your choice, if that's your decision, to love him whether he's sick or whether he's well. Maybe there were not five stones that there should have been there. But you and I, though we're very, very limited what we can do, there is no reason why we can do absolutely nothing. There's something we can do and God wants it done. I noticed that that clock up there must, must have poor brick shoes and it doesn't stop very easily. It just keeps going around. So I'm going to have to just bring this to a close with a few spiritual thoughts that I want to encourage you with. And I, of course, I need to be encouraged with these words myself. I'm going to go a little bit deeper in this story and maybe refer to something that you can take along home with you. So we'll go a little deeper. Those five stones. The battle is the Lord's, but there are five stones. This stone that David put in that sling and slung it round and round and shot that thing up there, that stone was not only directed by the Spirit of God right to a vulnerable place, entered into his forehead, the Bible says, and sunk inside there, evidently broke through the cranium and, and he fell over. But not only did God direct that stone, but God formed that stone in the first place. That st stone was a smooth stone. And stones are not naturally that way. What does it take to make five smooth stones? And if you boys listening to this meditation tonight 
would go out tomorrow morning to try to find five smooth stones. Don't go out here in someone's plowed field to try to find them. You need to go to a river. You need to go to where the water is washing over those stones and there's some sand is coming down with the washing water and the action of those waves is moving over those stones with that sand that rubs over the top of them, smooths them and shines them. And some of them are very, very glossy. And when David chose those stones, they were stones that God himself had prepared. And David chose those God-prepared stones, if I may say it in that way. And what I need to do is what David did. I need to kneel down beside the brook. I think it says brook in your Bible. Kneel down beside that brook and search them out. He chose them. He didn't just take the first ones he saw. He chose them. And when he had these stones in his hand and now in his bag, that's the evidence to God, it's the evidence to the world, it's the evidence to Goliath, it's the evidence to everybody that this young man plans to go to battle. He plans to do something. He, he is he's preparing himself, he's armed, he's going prepared to meet Goliath. He's not going out there to have a little social visit. He's not going out there just to uh, be a good neighbor. He has a, a holy plan. He has a spiritual plan in mind with those stones that he chose from the water. I'd like to use an example from Jesus here. I want those stones tonight in our minds before we go home to represent for us the choice words, the holy selection of words, the carefully prepared words with which the man, the woman of God, the young person who's determined to serve the Lord with all his heart, the words with which we meet the challenges of life, the words with which we answer questions, the words with which we speak to others, the words that come from the pulpit, the words that come from the devotional, the words that come as we're writing the story, the words we use to speak to each other, the words we use to give instruction, the words we use to correct things that are not what they should be, the words we use and the spirit with which we use them. And Jesus said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And they were chosen words. They were choice words. Never a man spake like this man. Where did this man learn to speak? I will tell you where he learned to speak. I will tell you where Jesus got those words. He knelt down beside the river of life. And out of that river of life, knowing the need before him, knowing the case that's coming up, knowing what might be waiting, awaiting him later in the day, he chose choice words. And there are choice words in the river of life. There are words that we have available to us that would help with any problem we have in the church, any difficulty we have with the youth in the home. We have it at our disposal, we have it in our arsenal. Prepared words. Choice words. In your English Bible, you have these 
Five words that come from that river. You're the word of reconciliation. It's in there, and it does that. It's powerful to do that. It restores and reunites and reconciles. A word that reconciles, it comes from that same river. It comes from that river of life, and it does that. But it only does it if I believe it does it. We have the word of truth. We have the word of faith. We have the word of salvation. We have the word of life. When Jesus was on the earth, he never passed out any tracts. He didn't have a, a torta de la verdad to pass out to other people in his community in his barrio. He didn't even have a Bible as we have today. But the words that came from Jesus' mouth transformed lives. The battle is the Lord's. It's not, it's not weapons. It's holy words. It's a holy message. It's a holy thought. It's an expression of a life. It's a testimony that was birthed as we knelt by the river of life. We started there first. The battle's coming. The work's before us. We have to have that members meeting this evening. We have a wayward member that was stopped by when he comes home from work this evening and meet him at the door. But we don't go there until we knelt first by the brook. And we reach in there and choose what God has prepared. We ask the Lord by his spirit of wisdom to give us an appropriate word in season. So that cords that are broken can vibrate once more. Eighty times Goliath came out there to defy the armies of God. He'll never do it again. It's time for me to go to the water and kneel down and reach in there and choose. Holy words, words spoken by faith, words that came from the heart of God, words that God wanted someone to hear. Words that will grant hope. Words that will change the direction of a life. And these words are from God. Jesus said he never spoke anything but what the Lord gave him, his father gave him to say. That's the only thing he ever said. I wish I could say that that's what I've done. But the battle is the Lord's. Be sure you have the Lord's stones. What the Lord prepared. What the Lord has said. The Lord wants, in this particular occasion, in this need that you have in your life, in this problem that you're facing, in this difficulty that you have, holy words will make a beautiful difference. Though the young man might still be lying on the couch when you leave his hut. You may never know what effect his words will have. We can leave the holy words that stand for prayer. It's a very sacred time, dear Father, to be in the presence of a holy one, in the presence of an almighty one. 
It's a beautiful thing, dear God, that we can know you. It's a wonderful thing to know that you know us. It's a marvelous thing, dear Father, that what you want done on this earth, you want us to do for you. You want us to be the hands and the feet and the voice that does your work in this earth. And you sent us that Holy Spirit with which to do it and gave us these words of truth and life and soberness and righteousness with which we can minister to one another and heal each other and save each other. And oh God, I pray that you would help us this week to think about what it is that you want us to do and what, in, what, in, what around, our, around us here and in our lives and homes, what is being left undone because no one paused at the brook, dear God. And we ran from it. We're scared by it. Upset with it. Wished it would go away somehow. When you have a holy thing for us to do, dear God. Hey, would you then use us, dear Father? And would there be people in this congregation that say, here I am, dear Lord. Help me to choose wisely and put those words into my life and my heart so they can bless some needy soul, some struggling life somewhere. And help us not to turn the people away. Help us to sit down where they sit, look down into their faces and understand how it hurts. And then give us the grace and wisdom, dear God, to do something about it. But we don't ever get as much accomplished as we wish we could do. I pray, Father, that you would give us faith to believe that your words are true. They accomplish that which you please and they prosper in the thing where to you send them. And that these words are words of life for those who hear them. And may we go and stand in the temple and speak all the words of this life but help us to choose them carefully from Brooklyn, God, especially this week. And bless this precious congregation of people and the attentive boys and girls that are here. And I pray this time together will be very profitable for all of us in the name of our Lord Jesus this week, in whose name we pray, amen. Dismissed.